0: you're tuned in for another episode of Getting to the Root of It with Venus Roots. And I'm tuning in from a very stormy, subtropical type of afternoon here in Miami, Florida. But I think I'm interested in talking about other type of storms today as we're coming out of a weekend that has put global attention on a region that my people are from, and that feels very dear to my heart. The Caribbean, I'm thinking specifically of places like Haiti and Cuba. And I wanted to be in conversation with a deep a comrade that I deeply trust, who analysis is always clarifying and illuminating in moments like this, where the media is more disorienting than not. Um, so thank you so much for talking to me, Claudia. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much. I'm very excited to speak with you. We haven't talked or seen each other in a minute, but I'm always Mm -hmm. glad to be in conversation with you. So thank you for inviting me.
0: Yes, thank you. Um, Claudia, you, you know, fellow Caribeña, you're Dominican. Um, I know that you've spent so much of your life doing work liberation work that also focuses on the region and kind of what our folks are up against. Um, and for me being in South Florida, it's a, it's a very particular time because what has happened over the last week has really direct impact on people in this city. Um, and I, I, wanna, I wanna zoom out because the media is, has already done the job of sort of offering its bite-sized pieces and flat flattening context. And kind of like serving a very particular ideology in this moment, but I want to zoom out a little bit and start off with Haiti. Um, and I know you being Dominican, there's just so much shared history on the island between, you know, Haiti and Dominican Republic, and how we want to separate those two in arbitrary ways. But yeah, let's um zoom out a little bit and start off in Haiti. What what happens next, right? We know he was assassinated, that there's all types of debates as to why why someone would do that, who would be behind the plot. But I think most importantly, we have to stay vigilant around what happens next. And I'm curious kind of like how you're assessing this moment for Haiti um, and folks on the ground.
1: I mean, I think, and I always like to say, you know, as a Dominican who understands the history of solidarity, the history of struggle that unites the Dominican Republic and Haiti. Like I like to acknowledge and remind myself and others that we have one island that has Mm -hmm. been divided by geopolitics, by colonial and imperialist interests. And yet we are brothers and sisters in one island. And Mm -hmm. and, and, And I like to acknowledge that because I know that That from the elite, from the wealthy of both sides of the island, there's an interest to maintain the people separate from each other. It's very much of a plantation politics of divide and conquer that is played, you know, not only in the United States, but also throughout the world um, between like national oligarchs and the people. And so I'd like to start there. I think it's important to understand the history and what has happened in the region, you know, what has happened. Um, on both sides of the island, we are new nations in comparison to what capitalism and imperialism have been globally. Like the Dominican Republic was invaded early 1900s, 1910 for the first time by the United States. Haiti was invaded for the first time in 1915, you know, um, by the United States of America. And like, it's important to understand that we've been the backyard. We've been you know, um, kind of the field where they're able to reap profits from and mistreat and exploit and utilize workers. Um, and Haiti was a first Black free nation in this American continent and gave, you know, Black people, enslaved people all throughout this continent the strength to fight. And it didn't only give them the strength, but it also economically, like materially supports revolutions that were taking mm-hmm. place. And so what that means to colonialism, what that means to imperialism is a threat. And Haiti has been paying for their bravery since then. You know, yeah. um it's important to understand what Haiti means to imperialism in its geostrategic location. You know, um you said and I, I really appreciated the fact that you started speaking about this in a in a way that is the way we should be looking at regionally. Like the region of the Caribbean is precisely where the colonization process of the American continent begins. Mm-hmm. And we can't forget that. This is where, you know, the the launching to conquer the South part of the American continent, to conquer the Central American part of the American continent began, you know? And so it's strategic to anyone that seeks to rule over the region. And so it makes sense for the United States to have specific intentional interest in maintaining dominance and creating misery in Haiti. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, And so when you see Biden say that, you know, it's worrisome, like it's worrisome, like they killed the president, oh my God. Historically, the CIA and other intelligence agencies have been involved in the killing and the assassination of the same dictators that they have placed in our nice. countries. It happened, you know, in Panama, it happened in the Dominican Republic in 1962 when Trujillo was walling out and he was ready to be like, no, this is a nation state. And this is where we're, you know what I'm saying? They they were involved in assassinating him. And so the, the situation in Haiti became so volatile, it became so sensitive and it became so, um, in, in so many ways, uh, a space where where people were just fed up and there was there there needed to be a way of controlling that the assassination of Jovenel, and, and I won't use as a president because he wasn't he wasn't supposed to be the president as of February of this year. He imposed his presidency on the people and he was supported by Biden in, in that. Mm-hmm. And so you know it's important to like to put things in context and understand that the reason for his assassination was something that was beneficial to both the national oligarchy of Haiti, which has their own internal splits, right? Um, and let's not even talk about the, the interim prime minister who was supposed to be he was supposed to be fired the day that the president got killed. Hello. And then you have Biden talking about this is worrisome and, and we're gonna need to go and you know and intervene somehow. There, mm-hmm. there, there was a surge for an intervention by the U.S. and there was a justification that was needed. And this is the perfect justification when you have people out in the streets that had been protesting since February 2019 and all throughout a pandemic because they are against neoliberalism, because they are against, you know, the corruption that was so clear in Haiti. I mean, these, the, the government stole, not only the, the Haitian government, but the Dominican government was also involved. They stole millions of dollars from Petro Caribe, which was some, an additional economic support that was coming from Venezuela, and that money was stolen. And there was no way of saying how the government spent it, because it wasn't spent on roads, it wasn't spent on transportation, it wasn't spent on health infrastructure, it wasn't spent on education. And so... You know, people were on the streets. How do you control that? You need to create another another level of chaos, and another level yeah. of chaos was the assassination of Jovenel. Now, what happens in Haiti is the deepening of the neoliberal project. They're not going to transform the economic and political system to benefit the people because it's precisely what they are threatened by. If that were to happen, if Haiti were to be a sovereign. Government, a sovereign nation, it would be threatening to the United States because anything outside of the logic of what interests them economically, politically is a threat to them, you know, or at least they perceive it in that way. And so again, Haiti has always had a potential, like a potential for um, for inspiring, precisely because it was the first black republic, republic in the American continent, precisely because it was the first independent, you know, country, um, and a lot of inspiration comes from that to oppress people, you know. And so, you know, in terms of what's coming next, the United States is going to continue to do what it's always done. It's, it's, you know, its advance is 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 uh, is war tactics to be a hybrid type of war, where it's not only boots on the ground, it's also political warfare, it's a lawfare, it's you know, ideological warfare. It's finding every way, shape, or form to become an obstacle to the growth of any nation that desires to be free.
0: Oof, all of that. I mean, there's a lot for us to tease out there. I think a few things that I, I just want to... Just like highlight and reiterate because, you know, the level of historical amnesia in this country is just impressive. Um, Is, you know, you mentioned Biden, which for so many liberals in this country was kind of the saving grace, right? But we know, you know, he's just another puppet of neoliberal rationale. And we knew that his positionality when it came to international politics, particularly any type of revolutionary states, was going to be the same status quo as always, right? Like we know that this is equally endorsed by the Republicans or Democrats. And I think it's important to mention like Biden kind of gave like the final stamp of approval for him to stay in Haiti, right? Like once the president of the United States kind of says like, you're good, you know, in many ways, like you kind of are good, right? Like you're like, I'm protected. And It's no surprise that Biden's team is already in Haiti, you know, was in Haiti yesterday on Sunday, already talking about intervention, already talking about supporting transition, already, you know, we've seen this happen time and time again. Um, But I also think something you mentioned that's like really important that I do think this country has perfected is is this hybrid war tactic, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think sometimes folks can think of like, okay, well, I don't see a military base or I don't see soldiers like stomping through the, the streets. But what we do see is, you know, establishment media from the New York Times to the Washington Post, to Wall Street Journal, kind of already manufacturing consent about what should happen next and what is in the best benefit of Haitian people. Um, and we're seeing something very similarly with Cuba right now, right? Like that has been the other hot topic of the weekend. Um and very similarly i mean again it's sometimes you know sometimes i laugh cuz i'm like leftists aren't like you know you, you know we can't tell the future but i think we're just an analyzing patterns that have happened so many times mm-hmm. and i want to jump a little bit to kind of on all of these sort of points similarly what are you seeing this weekend with cuba right cuz it's very similar on the threat to empire politic And very similar response.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, going back to history, and I appreciate you speaking to like the level of amnesia that we have when it comes to like people's struggles, people's movements, and everything we've endured to be able to Mm -hmm. survive. Like we talk about resistance, you know, and I think it's important for us to, to know the history and what that has meant. In terms of the levels of sacrifice that our people have had to make to be able to be where they are, and and that's in relationship also to the Cuban Revolution. Like to understand, we need to go back way 1950. Like understand 19, the 1950s. Understand 1954 in Guatemala and what they did to Guatemala, right? And when I say mm-hmm. they, I mean the United States Empire. We need to understand that in 1973 Nixon came out and said, you know, and this is this is around Chile and Chile's uh, you know revolutionary process, which had not yet been completely defined as socialists. Like they were in the process too. They hadn't even said like we're socialists. But they were starting to nationalize and were starting to uh, take on the agenda of the working class and put it in the forefront. Um, And obviously they had conversations with Cuba that had already won the revolution. And in 1973, Nixon said it and he said it out in public. He said, we're gonna make the economy scream. Mm-hmm. Right. And he said this in relationship to Chile. And he said it meaning we're not going to allow the agenda government to advance. And in order for us to do that, we're going to make the economy scream. Now, if you think about the US blockade on Cuba, is precisely what they've done. They've made the economy scream in Cuba and it came to a halt this weekend. Yeah. But it's been yeah. happening for the last 62 to years okay and so to think about 62 years of an economic blockade is to say that the u.s blockade on cuba has cost the cuban people you know the mothers the sisters the brothers the like the people that we should be caring about 130 billion dollars that's a crime against humanity that the united states has done against the cuban people Right. And so all this is kind of put in the back burner and it's not talked about. And we don't want to discuss what the human impact has been to the Cuban revolution because they've stood and defended an ideology. Now, the best way for me to think about this and people think I'm crazy sometimes. But if I want to explain this to to anyone, just an ordinary person who has no concept of politics, I think about domestic violence, and I think about violent relationships, and I think how people are manipulated into doing things that they don't wanna do. And a lot of times when you're thinking about a small family, you're thinking about interrelationships between primarily between men and women because of patriarchy and how it's developed, the Mm -hmm. economic question is huge because you don't have X, Y, and Z. I'm gonna make you do what I want you to do. And that's the type of relationship that the United States has built, not only with the region, but with the world, economically. It's been a violent relationship. And when we think about what is meant for Cuba, is meant for the Cuban revolution to be very creative and attempt to do things with the solidarity of the rest of the world, living in a region with its primary enemy, A couple of miles away, Mm -hmm. and with a media apparatus that ideologically controls even those who are involved in movement in the United States to think from the lens of the empire. You know, and it's again, it's very disheartening because when we talk about, you know, when we see what's happening now, we want to pull some similarities, you know. And we want to say, well, they're revolting like the revolts happened here last year. Oh, hell no. It is not the same context. It is not the same thing, you know, and it is not the same thing because the things that are guaranteed by the Cuban state to the Cuban people are not the things in any way, shape, or form that we are guaranteed, in fact, are the things that we're fighting for. Right. You know, mm-hmm. and we have to understand again that the Cuban Revolution. Was was born. It won in 1959. It's as old, probably, as many of our parents or grandparents, mm-hmm. and it has survived in constant attacks. We don't talk about the U.S. mercenaries that have gone to Cuba to actually do terrorist attacks and blow up buildings. We don't mm-hmm. talk, you know, about the many attempts against the lives of the presidents against Fidel. You know what I'm saying? And and so. These are all tactics that are, that are fall within an imperialist strategy and that are not solely done to, have not only been solely done to Cuba. Like I mentioned again, 1954, they did that to Guatemala in 1973, they did that to Chile. They've done that to Nicaragua. They've done that to Iran in the Mm -hmm. Middle East. So like, we need to understand that these are practices that have historically been utilized against any nation that has decided to walk away from the capitalist logic, to walk away from the imperial relationship with the United States. And if we can't see that through that lens, then what we're doing is ultimately siding with the enemy of
0: our people. Yep. Yep. Exactly. I think, oof, I mean, something I, I really want to talk about because, you know, I see it I see it right now on social media. People are flattening the impact of the blockade, right? And people are talking about it as if it was almost this abstract, amorphous cloud. Yes, the blockade. And then blaming the fact that the misery that millions of people are facing, not having access to basic necessities, not having access to, you know, all the things that our folks need is actually a direct impact because of that blockade that is not abstract at all, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I've been reading that, you know, seeing what's coming out of the other camp about how, you know, things like, oh, the blockade doesn't impact food or basic supplies. And, you know, I I recall, you know, when I was in Cuba and realizing that that's absolutely what it's impacting. I recall conversations I had, you know, with folks on the ground last year, right, during election times, and asking them how they felt about, you know, the elections here in in the empire, and what that impact could have. And folks being very frank as to like, unless the blockade is lifted, and there's any sort of positionality around that transformed, material conditions in Cuba will actually continue to worsen, right? And Mm -hmm. I think to your point, that has been sort of the trajectory of what this country has been working on and orchestrating for the past 60 plus years since the since before the revolution right um and i think it's I, the only reason why i'm like harping on that is because i think on one end it's like you know i think what folks will say is like okay are you saying that people in cuba do have access to all the things or are, you know are not going hungry and for me i'm like i actually am, am curious i to who's at fault for that, right? And what are the power dynamics at play? What's the historical context? And who benefits from people in Cuba being hungry? Um, and I think that's the big difference right now that we're sort of trying to trying to understand, right? Because um, it's like Henry Kiss- Kissinger said it best, you know? He's like, Latin America's our playground. And mm-hmm. every single year, you know, we can look at every single country. I mean, frankly, like, to your point, in the world. But really, especially, you know, I think the curse of being so adjacent to empire geographically has sort of cursed the region um, Mm -hmm. to have to deal with some of the most violent, direct, and unapologetic attacks on their own self-determination. But the Cuba situation, I mean, I don't understand how we can have any conversation around what is happening in Cuba without acknowledging the direct U.S fault and mm-hmm. that's what feels really difficult in this moment that I think to your point, you know I was reading any 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 liberal news outlet this morning, right The New York Times and how they speak of it is all they care about is speaking about an authoritarian government, misery, people being hungry, pro, um, police, Again, attacking protesters and to your point, trying to make parallels as to what happened here during our uprising. How you know what is our sort of political and moral responsibility right now? It's just like oppressed people and people who should be in solidarity with those that look like us and share our exact history um, in these times that are going to be particularly confusing. And I am and, and I'm thinking specifically of like young people, right, who mm-hmm. might be Getting their news from social media outlets, from places that are just a little bit more digestible, you know, quick. And yeah, you know, I'm I'm curious from your sort of POV right now, kind of like what's our responsibility and what are some top of line things that you want folks to keep in mind?
1: Well, you know, I can't just give a simple answer, right? Like <laughs> I, I gotta go. I think, you know, to to some of the point that you were making, it's important to see like what is organic to capitalism? What is organic to imperialism? By organic, I mean inherent. Like what do they need to be able to survive? And they need, absolutely need to crush any revolutionary spirit, anything that is against the interests of capitalism and imperialism, that's the first, like let's put those glasses on. And when we put those glasses on, then we could see, Wait, wait a minute. Why didn't have it why did they not have an interest in listening to the Haitian people since they came out in February tw- 2019? Why were they like paying attention to the fact that people were questioning corruption? They were questioning the economic and political system in Haiti. And they were and I'm not talking about like marches in the United States that are just pockets of people. I'm talking about an entire population out in the streets since February 2019 till now because it's been happening all through. This is two years in the making. Okay. Why wasn't the United States interested in that then? Why wasn't the United States interested in thinking about the Puerto Rican people who were also out mm-hmm. in the streets in 2019 massively against the Neo like the the not Neo but the colonial project that is being imposed on them with um you know, with a man- with a management board, fiscal management board that has been imposed by the United States. Like why wasn't the United States saying, hey, we are there for the Puerto Rican and with the Puerto Rican people? Because it meant, it means that they would have to actually come back and say, but wait a minute, they're our colony. So we need to give this country back to its people. Is that part of the capitalist and imperialist interest? Hell no, right? Why weren't they responding and haven't been responding to the massive protest in Colombia? In fact, they've actually been quiet and supportive of the president of who course. is their baby boy, because mm-hmm. anything and everything that you could think of when the United States asked Colombia to do, Colombia will do it because they are geographically located also next to Venezuela. And they launch Mm -hmm. attacks to Venezuela from Colombia, right? And so we need to put those glasses on and we need to analyze things like that, right? When you have Haitians land in Miami in the banana boats, they are easily turned back Mm -hmm. because there is no interest politically in keeping those economic refugees in this country because the United States is creating the condition in Haiti, right? But when it Mm -hmm. comes to Cuba, Hey, and now you know we're going to give you everything and now you're going to have to, you know, be on our side. And I know that in Miami there are folks that are not anti-revolution that are Cuban and have have left Cuba because of the economic conditions that the blockade has created, which brings right. me to my next point, which is the economic conditions in Haiti, the economic conditions in the Dominican Republic, the economic economic conditions in, you know, in Puerto Rico are similar because of colonial and imperial rule in the region. Even if Cuba is a socialist nation, it's still part of that region that has been struggling to get out of that relationship. That was able to win a revolution, but is still in relationship to the United States, whether it wants it or not, because the US holds global hegemony, right? And so, when we're thinking about what we can do is first put the put the lenses on that are on the right side of history. Please, we need to y'all. learn who our history, what our history is and who our enemy is. And by enemy, I mean our class enemy, who attacks our people, who attacks the poor and dispossessed. And we need to first see ourselves as part of that class. We are part mm-hmm. of the poor and working class of the world, especially if we're immigrants, especially if we're part of the historically marginalized communities in the United States, like we are, that—that that is who we are, and there are ways in which, in history, we could see patterns that are utilized by our enemy in the United States and outside of the United States. When we think about, when we think about um, Pro that happened in the 60s and 70s to be able to destabilize. Political organizations, and is the reason why we have such an ideological vacuum in this country, where we have so much of a break in our lineage, in our radical lineage, is part of the COINTELPRO program. Look up uh-huh. Hoover. Like, that is it. Parallelly, what did they do in Latin America? El Plan Condor uh-huh. to destabilize political organizations, to persecute political leaders, to exterminate people. You know, and they did that all throughout the world with different names, but it was the same patterns, the same actions. Right. And so we need to put on the lenses that allow us to see ourselves and others as part of a class. I think we need to be able to go in and do research about the United States interests and their actions you know it is not in, it's not unintentional that they are attacking Haiti that they are attacking Cuba that they are attacking Venezuela and that they have such a huge relationship with Colombia and that they are you know still in relationship with Bolsonaro in Brazil like these are reason there are reasons for that and there's historical reasons that again go back to the economic and political interests of the United States and so what do we do if we're really interested We're really, really interested in advancing the living conditions of the Cuban people as people in the United States. Our role is to fight for the blockade to be lifted. That's our, like our role is to fight for the blockade to be lifted because our responsibility as US citizens is with our damn government. Like we have no, we have no business going into cuba saying anything about the cuban government where we can't keep our government in check no that's our task we keep our government in check we make sure that our government is actually establishing relationships that are not imperialist relationships and in order for us to be able to do that you know we need to know how those look like and we need to know how we become uh, complicit to those behaviors how we are also promoting in one way or another, things that are coming straight from the Pentagon, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I think that, that 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 doesn't only fall for folks that don't have some sort of level like of consciousness, it actually falls on all of us because even despite of how much consciousness we might have developed, we're still living in this society and we're still consuming the amount of garbage that they're putting on our laps and they're putting in front of our faces. You know, we're still reading. We're still reading the New York Times. We're still reading, you know, liberal newspapers. We're still looking at CNN, and we're looking at every wrong place for information that have, has been manufactured for us to be able to make our quote unquote own idea on what's happening, mm-hmm. when in reality is not our own. It's not in the interest of our people.
0: Yes. Oof. I mean, I'm thinking even, you know, something that also feels a little disheartening of this moment is that during this past year, and again, even if you're a person that doesn't identify with any particular ideology or you're like, I'm not a really political person, this past year, through the COVID crisis, this country more clearly than ever demonstrated its interests to everyday people, right? Mm-hmm. And again, that's where this amnesia, Comes in where again the elite have been so strategic at just getting us back to work, getting us back to like a consumption cycle. Um, that in so many ways, well, I don't want to say like this past year of crisis and its lessons have been lost, but I think there is such a break where people see it for a moment and then the connections kind of like dissipate and disappear, right? Because I remember even last summer. Not just because of the uprising, but because of how many millions of Americans did not have access to their basic needs, right? And how in a crisis that we had never faced before, the government had absolutely no plan to get folks the food that they needed, medicine, had no healthcare sort of resolution to address the health crisis and the global pandemic, where we weren't getting those stimulus checks, right, that we desperately needed where folks were being evicted out of their homes, mothers with children. And somehow that was just, you know, just now. And it's continuing to happen, right? Not everyone is somehow like back to whatever we call normalcy. But somehow because of the lack of political context, and I really, I, I really blame the media as like a key actor in, in facilitating this, a lot of our folks have already kind of forgotten that this country mm-hmm. reminds us who they are very clearly, right? Like they've treated us the same way that they would treat any foreign nation that is filled with black, brown people, poor people. Um, and that that feels really hard, right? Mm-hmm. And I think to your something that I really I really appreciate is this isn't just for um, you know, a particular set of people, right? I think even our folks in this country are struggling, right? Like I'm an organizer, you're a political worker. And we know that these are tensions within our movement, right? Mm-hmm. A movement that, you know, is in, in, like, the throes of, like, the nonprofit industrial complex and in that huge contradiction and in a country that, quite frankly, doesn't prioritize any type of political education or historical analysis because, again, it's it would be counterintuitive to this country. You know, I'm thinking for folks that are listening and maybe might not share our, our ideological line and in their in their minds just feel like all they want is for the material conditions of the Cuban people, of the Haitian people to drastically transform. You know, besides our commitment of the blockade, are there any other, you know, are there key historical anchors that you want to ground folks in that we're just not seeing and hearing enough of?
1: I mean, I think again, this aspect, and, you know, I appreciate you kind of challenging me to think about, you know, these historical anchors and think beyond this question of the blockade. And I want to go back to the Haitian Revolution of 1804. And I want to go back to what it meant at that particular context, because that's what we're talking about. We had the 1804 revolution in Haiti and we have this current revolution, the socialist revolution happening now and and struggling to be able to to survive and grow and move forward. Um, And those are two historical parallels that are very important because what the 1804 revolution meant to slaves in this country, what it meant to slaves all throughout the region is the same thing that the Cuban Revolution is to mean to every one of us. Mm-hmm. That's what it's meant to be. It was a. It was a. It was a light. It was you know, it was a beaming light of hope. Um, there were many folks who left Haiti and came to the United States and settled in New Orleans and worked towards building revolution. From that space. The Cuban Revolution did the same with Angola. They did the same with the Dominican Republic. They've done the same with Venezuela. You know, they've attempted to advance working class revolution in the world. When we think about health and everything that you were talking about, I remember when Katrina happened. Mm-hmm. And the first ones to come out and say, we're down to help. We're down to send medical support where the Cubans and the Venezuelans. and this country, this government said, we don't need your help when people were dying. And there were buses saving cats and dogs and leaving people to die in, in New Orleans. And so you know, the values and the principles that come with revolutionary processes, is what we need to uphold, which is very different from the logic, principles, and values that the U.S. government has had traditionally. And when I say the government, I mean whether it's the Democrat in power or is a Republican in power, is the state of the United States. And um, and if we were to think about the values that we want to be able to promote as a people, this value of solidarity is very important and solidarity looks like us being able to acknowledge respect and defend people's Mm -hmm. right to self-determination it is not what we see or what we think it should be it is what they think feel and know it should be and in order for us to know that we need to also understand that it hasn't been an imposed government on the people of Cuba. It's been around for sixty-two years. And in every attack that has come from the United States, the Cuban people have taken the streets and have defended its revolution. And so it's 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 on our end also in terms of solidarity to be able to express from our from our inhabitants, from our location, a level of solidarity where the United States needs to keep its hands off Cuba. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because it is for the Cuban people to find and figure out how they move forward with their revolution. Again, we have no moral authority as a country to be able to speak about democracy. When we see that the voter, like the the voter suppression in this country is huge, particularly in the south. Where you at, Mama? In the South. Mm-hmm. Voter suppression and the and we saw it. We 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 experienced it. We saw it in November with the elections in the United States. Right? We cannot speak about democracy if every struggle that has in any way, shape, or form attempted to organize itself and go against capitalist values internally in the United States has been met with aggression. Ferguson, let's remember that. Let's like, let's remember Seattle last year, Mm -hmm. okay? We cannot sit here and speak about freedom in any way, shape or form, where we have so-called rights that we don't have, we don't have the material to access because we gotta pay for that. Right, and so again, you know, it's it's a matter of changing our our view, and it, and it and it takes a lot. It takes a lot of studying, and it takes a lot of understanding. But in the most human, basic, like understanding, whoever our enemy is, whoever is abusing our right to exist in this in this very territory that we call the United States, cannot be a friend to any nation of poor people outside of the United States, period. basic, basic, you know, and whoever they put forth as an enemy, we might want to check them out because they might be our friends.
0: Mm. Oh yeah. All of this is making me think, you know, of one of Fidel's speeches and where he's essentially asking the question of under what moral basis can the United States really judge anybody? right, not just Cuba, but really anybody, mm-hmm. when it's had the most violent history of a nation state, right, and I really appreciate you kind of, like, bringing that clarity that we all desperately need, like, we need to be sharper around who is our enemy, Um, because I think in these times, there's it almost seems as if our enemies become almost situational, right? Like we like these people this week and then next month no, and then maybe they're dictators now, but I don't know, maybe they're saying something I agree with and it's it's very disorienting. And once you zoom out a little bit and step back into your point like study and really ask the questions and have those conversations around who who are the people that have the boots on our neck here? And similarly, you know, what are they doing across the region, across the globe? And that's a, I think that's a question that young people, people doing political work, just everyday folks who are trying to survive and reimagine something in this country, like really have to answer seriously um, and just be very weary of this moment. Um, because this is, you know, this is all part of a plan, right? Mm-hmm. I think of even the uprisings last summer and how we were hearing that these were planted by foreign, you know, foreign interests. When we know very well because of our lived experiences in our neighborhoods and the work that we do, that actually no one has to come outside of this country to fuel the rage that was justified in these protests and in the uprising, right? Mm-hmm. Like we know that it was very much so a respond to our conditions. But again, it's always part of this larger narrative. Um where this government, the state, will not take accountability for the way that it sort of runs its political economy at best. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think on the flip side, of though, I am curious if you, if there are, because I think of these countries historically and actually as these beacons of light, right? As a person whose folks are Puerto Rican, you know, we're like the world's oldest colony under this empire. And I think I think very fondly of the revolutionary process in Cuba, right? And I think fondly of the words that Castro would say around the Puerto Rican people who were fighting for independence, self-determination and that continues to be a struggle. I think sometimes folks think that like, oh maybe that was in the 60s and 70s during that era. But it's not, right? Like folks on the island don't want la junta running our mm-hmm. our budget and our decisions. Folks are tired of being hungry, you know. I live in Miami, Florida, and I was on the island a few months ago and the island everything on the island is more expensive than here. Right? So it's like all of these very real things like it's an economic um chokehold. And that's mm-hmm. true of, you know, all of these places we're talking about. But, you know, are there sort of places that you're looking to right now that have very exciting kind of energy brewing on the ground, you know, some fertile seeds that we're seeing, like we're seeing a lot of different electoral processes, processes happening around Latin America, you know, coups, coups being blocked. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious, like, kind of like, what's, what's keeping you hopeful? What are some exciting um, processes you're looking to right now?
1: Well, I think, you know, I think for, for us, it's important to, to know that, and, and just in general, for us to be able to not become demoralized with the attacks mm-hmm. of our enemies, that in every moment where there is oppression, historically, there's been resistance. And there's been joyful resistance. And it's been mm-hmm. resistance that um, has birthed more resistance, right? So we need to be able to To kind of live with that in our hearts and our minds, to be able to sustain ourselves um, and nurture ourselves, and so when you ask about processes that have been happening or movements or seeds of of that hope of of just resistance and and building, um, you know, there's a lot of articulations, a lot of coordinations that have been created throughout throughout history that are still there, and some of those came, you know as a result of the Bolivarian Revolution, which is very important to our region as well. Um, so we have, you know, Alba Movimientos, which is a coordination of hundreds of social movements um, throughout the region, including the US, um, that are able to be in conversation with each other and beyond the the solidarity that we understand in the United States, which is most mostly based on like positioning ourselves or putting out statements, which are important, are also about how do we build projects together, right? And so you have mm-hmm. coming out of the Alba movements, you have, you know, political education that is that has been happening um, as a way of forming new militants to be able to continue to do the ideological and practical work that needs to be done. Um, you have, you know, spaces like the comrades in Coping, in Honduras who just won a huge battle to be able to get justice for um, for Berta Cáceres, who was assassinated, mm-hmm. you know, by companies looking to extract an indigenous territory. So the news came where one of the actual owners of the company was, um, was charged with being the intellectual author of her murder. That's huge because it also like, reinforces the the energies to keep to keep moving that work forward right um you see in peru like you were saying you know people went and popularly like elected government was in place and there have been attempts to get um the president who was properly elected out of the presidency because is a socialist and it's a someone who again it's um working to advance the material conditions of poor people there people have been strongly defending their position right even you know even when i see and think about haiti going back to it that the people have not they have not stepped back from fighting against neoliberalism in two years Mm -hmm. that's like that's a huge uh re-energizer and it should be to everyone within the United States because to see people in their immediate condition, you know, where they've understood they have nothing to lose and everything to gain is a huge, like, wow, like, shit, we should be doing something like that, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And so there's just seeds of, of hope in every struggle to look at Bolivia after a coup was launched. And see how the people organized and did the work that needed to be done to be able to get the you know the government of mass back into into place and continue to build that you know plurinational state that is Bolivia. Um, it's beautiful, and so there's a lot for there's a lot that we need to acknowledge, we need to defend and fight for, and there are people who are. Um, in worsening conditions and worsening conditions, meaning, you know, that, that it's not only like we suffer the attacks of the capitalist state here. And when you look at countries abroad, it's not only the capitalist state of the United States. It's also the capitalist interests of the oligarchies in those countries. You mm-hmm. know, it's also the companies. It's also so there's an added factor always. And so when you see that, folks are understanding that there isn't anything more to lose and that they need to be able to struggle to advance. And they do it with the utmost dignity, with the utmost integrity, with the, the, the utmost sense of building coalition and building collective work. Then you start learning and you start saying, you know, it's, it's worth the fight. It's Mm -hmm. really worth the fight.
0: Yes. Yes. I I, I just feel it so deeply in my body, because I think for me, like, the most, you know, when I'm trying to resist my own despair that, of course, you know, comes in its own waves, I, I think I, I try to do exactly just that, right? Like, look at all the different models of relentless militancy and strategy um, and collectivity that comes out of the global south time and time again, Especially mm-hmm. in the midst of a pandemic, like looking at India, looking at Palestine, and and just like feeling that fire, like oh shit, we're not alone, right? And like we're not we're not actually a minority, even though mm-hmm. they they the empire always wants us to feel that way and that we're only against the odds. But there's something that is like you know makes me feel so alive to be reminded, like oh, it's millions of us all over really mm-hmm. fighting to build something anew um, in the face of ruin. And that I, I agree, I think that is really beautiful. Um, Galia, I wanna thank you so much for your work, for coming and talking to me and just kind of like, for all the clarity that you offer, you know, it had been a, a minute since we had spoken, but I knew that this conversation was gonna be so fruitful with you and I deeply admire kind of the way that you move through the work. and. You know, venceremos.
1: Yeah, venceremos. Viviremos y venceremos. And I appreciate you inviting me. And um I love being in conversation with you. The admiration is mutual. Keep up keep up the work that's necessary. That's beyond good. You know, <laughs>
0: yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you.